One takes what the river offers, both good and bad. The joy of living by running water far outweighs the sorrow. Matthew Goldman, The Journals of Constant Waterman, Paddling, Pulling, and Sailing for the Love of It. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. We are deep on our Chesapeake Bay tour. We have visited a fossil hunter, a pirate historian, an environmental columnist, nature writer, and now we are finally interviewing a waterman someone who has worked on the water for their whole life and this uh, occupation and vocation has moved down through the generations. We are speaking today with Captain Wade H. Murphy Jr., a third generation skipjack captain and a fifth generation Tillman Islander. You're gonna hear about what a skipjack is. I didn't know what that was. A skipjack is a type of sailboat made particularly for oystering. You'll hear more about that in the episode. Now, this guest came from our last guest. Our last guest was Tom Horton, the renowned nature writer. And I hope you listen to that one because he is just an incredible writer, an incredible speaker, and really um, is the voice of the natural world in the Chesapeake Bay. And I asked him, I want to speak to a waterman. And I want one, uh, a good storyteller. And he said, you got to talk to Wade. So I went to Tillman Island and I interviewed Wade at his home. Now, Tillman Island is a small island that is accessible uh, via drawbridge. Um, Some of the islands in the Chesapeake Bay are, are in the middle of the bay. So you have to take ferries to them. There's no car access. Now, you're going to hear that. Captain Wade has a very thick accent and he speaks with a Tillman Island dialect and um, he is quite deaf and he told me that without his hearing aid, he can't hear at all. And with his hearing aid, he can barely make out what people are saying. It's muffled or whatnot. So um, we didn't quite have a conversation. I tried to ask some questions and just let him talk and uh I mean, he told an incredible story about shipwreck. Um, But uh, when I spoke to his son, I could ask, I could clear up a few questions I had. And um, his son, who's about in his mid 40s, and he's also a waterman, um, I asked, Is your accent Tillman Island specific? And he said, Yes. So, from what I've been learning through research, watching documentaries, is there are different accents throughout the Chesapeake Bay that are that are um, hyper local. They are by island or by county. Next week, we're going to be interviewing 
um, a man that uh, owns a historical building in the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Historical Park in Dorchester County. And you'll hear his accent is totally different. And he's only 45 minutes away. So um, Captain Wade's son said that as you move south, the accents get a lot thicker. So I've been kind of researching how to describe these accents. You're going to hear Captain Wade. When you look around on the internet and you watch documentaries, often the example is um, about Tangier Island, which is an island that's, a, I think, about 10 miles into the bay. It's very isolated. It's very historical. You know, all these islands have been inhabited by Europeans since the 1600s. So these islands, it, there's like a southern accent thing going on, a Virginia Tidewater accent, but it also has some, some really interesting old English uh, feeling to it. Um, sometimes the accents are referred to as Elizabethan. So you'll hear in Captain Wade, you'll hear him um, say certain phrases and you'll hear the way he speaks is very unique and it, it's really awesome. So this episode really feels like a slice of life. And um, I'm just kind of hearing about Captain Wade's life and hearing um, it's just a little slice of history. Now, let's see. He tells this story of shipwrecking. His So, so Captain Wade um, is the captain of the oldest commercial sailboat in America. He, he's, he, it might be the oldest commercial vessel in America. I'm not quite sure, but it's definitely the oldest commercial sailboat. And it's a national historic landmark. His ship was built in 1886, and um, he's still sailing this thing. So he's obviously a lover of history and of carrying on old traditions. And you're going to hear about his his um, family throughout history's um, participation in oystering. So when he tells this story of shipwrecking, I just wanted to, to um, some, some uh, things that I've thought about from listening to this story. First of all, it's absolutely harrowing. I mean, when I was listening to it tell it, I was like tensed up. But what seems really fascinating about it is it's also a story of community because, um, you know, as I've learned from moving to the country, when shit goes down, you don't necessarily... It seems as though, especially in the past, one doesn't necessarily call the police. You call your neighbors and you'll hear that. So when he, when, when he's in the middle of some real trouble, he calls his, his family and friends. And that, I found that really fascinating to get you out of a pickle. And um, the numinous element for his story seems to be the coincidence that saved his life because there's one little detail to his story that if he didn't, if this one detail wasn't there, he most likely, him and his crew, would have most likely drowned. So I, I'm excited for you to hear that story because it's a hell of a ride. Now, there are a handful of things I want to um, just cover in detail because like I said, um, the captain was hard of hearing, so I couldn't clear up things as we were talking so easily. So I just wanted to make sure that some stuff is understandable to the complete layman because I was a complete layman before going to a handful of museums and reading about this stuff. So I just wanted to make sure a few things are, are quite clear. Some of this, um, Captain Wade told me on the side. Some of it, I asked his son. 
So um, for these guys, uh, for these watermen, um, the their life is um, broken up broken up into two seasons. There's oystering in the winter, like from November until early spring. And then there's the crabbing season, which is all summer long. So they live by a two season year. And you use different boats, um, from what I gather, you use different boats for different, different purposes. So there are a whole bunch of different crafts and they all um, are slightly refined to different tasks. Um, the skipjack, which you're gonna hear about, is designed for oystering. Now you're gonna hear Captain Wade over and over again say a bushel. And a bushel is a size of measurement for crabs and oysters, for selling crabs and oysters. Um, I was trying to think, how do you describe a bushel? There are these beautiful old wooden baskets that um, they're so they're so neat looking. Um, I actually bought a basket just for decoration at home. But I was like, well, how how can we relate? Um, how the the actual measurement element and Captain Wade said the equivalent is two two five gallon buckets. So one bushel is two five gallon buckets. Um, there's also a handful of different types of oystering, and we cover them kind of sporadically. I just wanted to do it really clear right now. So. There are, whole, there are four different types of ways to oyster on a commercial level. And uh, the first one is called hand tonging. This is basically with two giant rakes that have like a, they're, that are kind of operate like scissors. And you do that from the side of a boat. Then there's patent tonging, which is the same thing, but it's like a hydraulic version or a mechanical version. It's like a, it's like a, um, a jaw a mechanical jaw that goes down and scoops up oysters, which are, you know, in the oyster beds down in the, in the bay. Then there are folks who dive for oysters. So they'll get into scuba gear. And when I was at the Chesapeake Maritime Museum, they had a little, uh, they had a little, um, a model and it showed, you know, older time diving where you had the, the air, you know, connected to the bucket helmet that went all the way up to the boat. So there's the divers that go down to the bottom. They pick them right off the bottom, fill up uh, buckets, and then they send them back up. And then there's what Captain Wade does, which is called dredging. Well, dredging, you're going to hear Captain Wade describe it, but it's basically a, a metal and mesh net that you drag along the surface of the bottom and you pull up oysters. And this is an incredibly efficient way of oystering, and it was so efficient that um, there had to be all these regulations put on it because the Chesapeake Bay oysters would just be completely de depleted. And you'll hear um, Captain Wade often talks about a push boat. A push boat is a tiny little boat that's attached to the back of the skipjack, which is a sailboat. And there are rules and regulations where sometimes you can lower that little push boat, which, it, which is um, motorized, and you can use that motor to um, move the skipjack, whereas normally you have to only use sail. Be that is, again, to protect the oysters because it's such an efficient way of oystering. Now, before we go fully into the interview, 
I just wanted to go over a little quick history here. So there was a period called the Oyster Wars, which Captain Wade kind of speaks about here and there. But just to uh, clarify what exactly was happening. So between 1865 and 1959, there was this period called the Oyster Wars. And from what I gather, reading a handful of different sources, what had happened was oysters were kind of... um, Well, for one, the Native Americans, for sure, were using them to supplement their diet. Then, as the Europeans came in, um, the oyster was not yet revered. Um, I read that at Jamestown, they were eating oysters and complaining, kind of complaining about it, saying they were resorting to eating oysters. Um, It was a food that was often given to the African-American slaves. Um, Only after the Civil War did it seem as though the oyster became elevated. And um, as people were becoming more affluent after the Civil War, there became a huge boom, a gold rush in oysters. Um, What also happened was the New Englanders had... um, depleted their oyster beds. So they started heading down to the Chesapeake Bay um, and they had this new technology of dredging. And this became an intense conflict with the Chesapeake Bay, um, you know, all the islanders and all the watermen in the bay, mid 18, late 1800s, because now there were these, you know, outsiders coming in, they were incredibly efficient. And um, this created a whole bunch of turmoil. And there was already a ton of turmoil between the Virginians and the Marylanders, because the bay, you know, you're out in the water. How do you know where the boundaries are? There was all this turmoil between the hand tongers, between the dredgers, and this was becoming violent. And um, between the violence and between um, the resource being used up, uh, Maryland and Virginia uh, created their own law enforcement to help deal with this. Um, It became known as the Oyster Navy, And there were a handful of, um, you know, violent encounters because as the oyster became uh, more valued, there started to be these oyster pirates who would poach and who would, you know, go against the regulations. And so you had this, all these conflicts. So for these decades, there was these kind of skirmishes and tensions and, um, turmoil out in the Chesapeake Bay around the oyster. So incredibly fascinating. I'm sure you already know that it, whenever, it's just really interesting to think about when these things happen around a natural resource. I mean, you know, the actual gold rush um, out in, in California or, you know, with ginseng, we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast, um, how there's this whole black market with ginseng. And I'd like to do a whole episode on that. It's really fascinating when um, natural resources become these man-made conflicts. And you'll hear Captain Wade um, talk about what he's learned from his father and what he's heard about his grandfather. And at the very end, stick around because uh, after the episode is done, I put in like a little bonus because... um, Captain Wade's son came in, who had just been out on his um, crab trot line, and I just left a kind of l- a little bit of a conversation they're having at the very end, and I, and I found that quite culturally interesting to hear them talking, um, to you know, talking shop about watermen and and uh, crabbing, 
and I've done a little bit of crabbing from docks and I've, as the watermen are coming in on their little uh, crabbing boats and just hearing the conversations, it's really um, quite fascinating and, and culturally interesting. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here on today's podcast and you're in the Chesapeake Bay area or you're planning a trip, well, you can actually go out on the Rebecca T. Rourke, uh, Wade Skipjack. He does both daytime and sunset cruises. You can actually dredge for oysters, I believe, and um, you can steer and all sorts of stuff. So he does these historical uh, charters for tourists. So if you want to find more information for that, you can go to skipjack.org. Um, at present, he's dealing with some regulatory issues regarding um, the Rebecca, but once those are dealt with, I guess he's back to doing these um, tours with up to 40 people. His son also does tours on um, as Miss Ariel Charters, and he does. Um, you can go out with him to go crabbing and run on his trot line. If you're interested in that, I also put a link down in the show notes. It's through the Waterman Heritage Tours. Okay, so from here, we're going to keep, uh, we got a few more Chesapeake Bay episodes coming up. Um, I hope you've been enjoying this little series, and I've got some exciting plans for fall and moving into winter. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Well, Tillman Island, it's a couple different dates, but they say it was named two or three names before it finally got named the Tillman, uh, Tillman Island out of uh, Tench Tillman, who was somebody from England that come over, discovered all this. And we used to, every time in my life when they've had a census, they always say it's a thousand people on Tillman. I do not believe that. I don't think it's five. Uh, I don't think it's six hundred people. But anyway, up until twenty years ago, I knew every person on Tillman, every one children. Today, I don't know ten percent of the people. They've moved in. They've moved in. They've had several different. Um, several different new communities started around here, and I just don't know the people. It's okay, we welcome people, but the problem is they find the Tillman, they love it down here, they buy a home, they move here, and then they want to change it. That's the problem. Uh, it surprised me they ain't put sidewalks up yet, but it's really, uh, like we like a few years ago, they have uh, uh, a, I don't know what you call it, like an association or something, Tillman, and they had a president or vice president, whatever. I don't it, neither local person was on the board. They have a they have a maritime museum that started here. Neither person on the board or whatever is a local it's all people moved in so it, it's a it's not really it's not really good for local people to, for them all to move in here so you're a waterman 
Yes. Can you describe what life is like for you? What has life been like? Ouch. Tell me about how the day works and how the seasons work. Okay. I'll start by telling you my name, Wade H. Murphy, Jr. My dad was Wade H. Murphy, Sr. My son is Wade H. Murphy III. He is 45, 48, 46 years old, and he's also a waterman. I started, I was born 1941, October October the 8th, 1941. My dad started working on the water when he was 14 years old. Now, I don't know if you want me to go back another generation. Okay. I love history, and I read a me lot. Me too. Me too. I read a lot. And I have a friend who has a bookstore that is really educated about finding out what you need, and he helps me. We found out, <clears throat> my grandfather, in 1914, November 17th, now, he lived in Baltimore with my grandmother, and they had nine children my dad was one boy, and he had four brothers and four sisters. Now, today, the way we oyster, we, dread, we, we catch the oysters, and we come into the dock, and we unload them on trucks, and the trucks take them to the market. Well, before my time, they didn't use trucks. Back in 1890s, 1900s, up until the 50s, they would take the oysters and deliver them to the markets in Baltimore, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Washington, D.C. Every community like had a different area that they worked. And my, the, the, most of the people here would take the oysters to Baltimore. On the boats? On the boats. They would load the boat. I don't know how long it would take to load, but anyway. Every this, day? Every day? No, no. They will wait to get a boatload. See, back when I, I'm speaking now of in the 20s, in the teens and the 20s, back at that time, even up until the 50s, the winters were much harder. The winters were much colder. We, the bay, would have ice. After January, you couldn't hardly work in the bay because of ice. It was too cold. Now, the climate change today, we don't have but one or two days of ice, maybe. The coldest winter in my life was 1977-78. You may or may not remember the Chesapeake Bay froze completely from one end to the other for seven weeks we never left the harbor for seven weeks. I've never seen that before. Now, my dad was born in 1900, so he was 77 years old when we had the bad winter. He said, he said, 
uh, you think it's bad? I said, yeah, I know it's bad. He said, this is the way it used to be every winter when he was young. So this particular time, it was, according to the newspapers, no, it was November 17th, 1914, that this happened. My grandfather was in Baltimore with his boat. Evidently now, the season always starts the first day of November. So evidently, he started the first of November. For oysters? Or catching oysters. Oyster season. Dredging with a dredge. With They had four or five, six men that worked the oysters with them, for them. And... Now, I would never know if this, it was the 17th when he left Baltimore to come down. But I don't know from the 1st of November until the 17th how many times he had gone to Baltimore. It might have been his first trip. It might have been second or third trip. We'll never know that. But he left Baltimore midnight, November 17th, 1914. Now, when he left, I don't know if you're familiar with the Inner Harbor. Yes. But he left the Inner Harbor to come down the bay. He was going to an oyster bed about five, ten miles from here. So that would be about, it, it would be about 40 miles from Baltimore where he was going. And the boats only go five, six miles an hour, and they start working at sunup. So evidently, he left midnight so he could be there at sunup the next morning. It was a six, seven-hour run. Well, he got out 30 minutes out of Baltimore. One of the crew later, he said, I heard someone holler, throw me a line. My grandfather was overboard, and he drowned off of Sparrow's Point, November 17, 1914. Now, the next, I had the obituary column. It tells you exactly what I'm saying. And then in the same paper, it was a, uh, an, uh, a reward. My grandmother put an ad in the paper, a reward for what happened last night. She thinks it was foul play. She thinks it was foul play. She later, now what I'm telling you has been, said many times and things have changed but she always thought that one of the crew she claims she claims that he was having a problem with one of his crew members and he was going to fire him he was going to but he didn't do it and he thinks it was foul play that he pushed him over that's what he that's what she thinks but of course, wow. of course, I think what I know about boats and crews, I would imagine when they, after he felt, after he fell overboard and they, he was drowned, they had to go back to Baltimore to take the boat back, of course. Now, they were only 30 minutes out of Baltimore when it supposedly happened. So between the crew, I don't know. On my boat, I've got one or two men that could bring the boat back home. But some of these guys have crews that don't know anything except oysters. 
and I don't know, it might take them, it might have took them an hour to take the boat back. I don't know who would be able to run the boat, and they might, but I would imagine when they got back, after what happened, I would imagine they would disappear. The crew, see, the most at them times especially, the crews, you can read in the history books, the crews were not good people. They would get them out of alcoholics and drunks, and they would they would they would Shanghai them sometimes. And you're dealing with a bunch of rip raps, you know. So nobody knows for sure what happened, but she always thought that he got knocked overboard. Now that was in November. His body was found the next spring supposedly now this is stuff i've read supposedly by a little 10 year old girl on the western shore the body washed up on the shore and she was the one identified it by a tattoo supposedly he he his name is james henry murphy and his tattoo was jhm now this is all stuff that's been written a hundred years ago. So, wow! So we don't know for sure, um, but she did think that it was foul play. Nobody seen the body. Local her people, my people, nobody. After they found him, they buried him. I guess on the western shore. I don't know about that part, but then. My dad was 14 at the time, 1914, born 1900. And he told me many times he was 14 years old. He was in school. And after his father got drowned, his mother had nine children. She was a widow woman with nine children. And he had to go to work. My dad had to go to work to help her support. They took him out of school at 14 years old to go dredging as a crew. As a, he told me they took him out of school. He started dredging November, season always, November, stop first. He goes November 1st, and then they worked November and December, and then he said, we have a chance to go to school. I had a chance to go to school because the bay froze over. See, January, February, March, it was. So he did get a little bit of education. And then he, 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 he worked every winter to help his mother raise four brothers and four sisters. And then in his in his 20s, he got married, and he had seven children, his wife, my mother. She passed away in the 50s. She, was, she passed away 50-some years old. He lived to be 87 years old. And I used to always say he was really uh, a tough man. Mm. <laughs> He started when he was 14, 70 years later, when he's 84, he bought a new crab boat to go crabbing. <laughs> Good guy. He was, 
I am not as old as he was then, and I don't think I could do what he did. He was brought up the hard way. So I started in seven, I, I was born in 41, and I started dredging when I was 16 years old, 1957. I worked with my dad seven years on his boat as a crew. And then in 64, I bought my first skipjack. Can you can you describe how the dredging works? Yes. The dredge oysters, we have... Okay, I'll start from the beginning. Yes, please. Skipjacks took the place. Describe what a skipjack is. A skipjack is a oyster boat that was designed for the Chesapeake Bay and Virginia. When we first started, when they first started oystering, they didn't have skipjacks. They had hand tongs like when we American people come over to this country, the Indians were here, and they had a crude way of harvesting oysters in shoal water with like a rake. And then these people, our people, designed hand tongs that they could go and tong oysters in deeper water. It's like giant scissors. It's like giant scissors, yes. And... Then that was back in but the, you but you do it with your actual hands. You stand yes. up in the boat yeah. and you and you close and open them like giant scissors and they're on the bottom of the shallow bay picking up oysters, scooping it up. Right. Well, yes. They have like different depths, different lengths of tongs. If if you're gonna be in ten foot of water you have to have like 16 foot long because uh, 10 foot of the water and it's six foot out of the water, then you're standing on the gunnels of the boat with like scissors. The What they do is if it's 20 foot long, if it's, six, say if it's 16 foot long, I think the ratio is one fourth. So 16 foot, one fourth is four foot. So they have a pen that goes through the shaves. So in other words, you got four feet with the heads on the bottom, and then you go up, it'll be 16 feet more or 12 foot, 8 foot more mm-hmm. for you to work them like, a, like a, a pair of scissors. You can't, okay. So tell us about the skipjack. Okay. And dredging. So... Anyway, this they started dredging oysters. The first people that dredged oysters that I've read about or I've in the history were from up north, New England, Long Island Sound, Connecticut, New York. They had big boats up there that dredged. They had a, a an arm. They had an arm dredge. Look, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like a basket. It's a basket. It's like a metal basket, right? Well, it's got a chain and a cloth bag, but okay. it's a metal. And How so big they, are they? It's about the size of this couch? It's like the size of a couch? Not in Maryland. We're allowed, the dredge in Maryland is allowed 40 
44 inches from tooth okay. to tooth. Now, the ones you see really wide, wide, they're crab dredges for in the ocean. So, so the ones you use, you drag that behind the sailboat. Yeah, we have now be, be back in the first they used to have mechanical winders. You had a hand, before my time, you had to hand crack them. That's nice. And so anyway, after they started dredging in New England, Long Island Sound, they depleted the oyster beds. And then they come down to Maryland, and they come in here, and they was illegal. The police were fighting the oystermen all the time. Was that and, is that the oyster wars? Yes. Okay. The oyster wars. So then after they come to Maryland, they outlawed them and these guys seen a new invention. They'd never seen a dredge before. So they seen a dredge off of these boats and of course somebody copied them and made or, or dredges. And then they started using Dredges in Maryland. Now, after dredges, there was no limit on how many horses you could take. In 1884, 1884, that was the largest harvest ever in Maryland, 15 million bushel of oysters. Now, everybody wanted to go oystering, and the boats they had in the 1880s were like a sloop, uh, a one-mast gaff rig with a jib and a mainsail and a topsail. That was the smallest dredge boat. And then they had two-masted schooners. Now, a lot of the two-masted schooners come from Delaware Bay. Delaware Bay is about one-fifth the size of the Chesapeake but it's closer to the ocean, and the tides are greater there. The tides run much stronger. So to oyster in that area, Delaware Bay, you needed a bigger boat. And they're the ones that come down from New England first. Well, then these guys got to dredge. They outlawed other states from coming in. And then in 1890. 1991, I think, they invented a skipjack, which is a different kind of boat. The original schooners and the sloops were were uh, round chime. They call it soft chime. They were frame boats. The bottom is rounded. The bottom. Yes, the bottom was round bottom, and it's they're more efficient in the tides. Well, the, if we don't have the tide in the Chesapeake that they have. So they they invented a skipjack. A skipjack is different bottom. A skipjack is flat bottom. Mm. Maybe a little bit of dead rise, mm. but it's cross plank. It's cross plank. Rebecca, my boat, is the only one left from the 1880s. She is a sloop haul. There's no more left in the country. Now, in the 1920s, probably the 20s, she was converted from a, a sloop sail configuration to a skipjack 
a skipjack is one mast with a mainsail in a jib. Uh, so that's what we have now. Now, Rebecca is called a skipjack, but she's not really. She's a sloop, and she was the oldest one. She still is the oldest workboat in the, in the, in the, in the, in the country, but she's the only sloop all left. And I'm having problems, like I told you, with the Coast Guard. One man, it's not over yet. <laughs> and it's, it's, it, if I wanted to fight it, I'm fighting. The, the Coast Guard is going to uh, back up their employees. So I would have, I can't afford a lawyer. So your skipjack is called the Rebecca Rourke. Rebecca T. Ruark. Rebecca T. Rourke. It's over 100 years old. It's 135. 135. And it's the oldest oyster commercial boat in the Chesapeake Bay. In the country. In the country. The wow. oldest working boat. Wow. So I hunt. I hunt. And I love old guns. You know, I use an old, I use a 90-year-old shotgun when I hunt. And I think it's so cool that you, you love history. You love this old boat. You just, do you just, did you buy your boat because it's old, because of history? I bought it because it was a better sailboat. You see, a, a, a round chime boat sails better than a flat bottom boat, but it serves a purpose as an oyster boat. They don't care about how fast you go. They just wanted to be able to sail. Rebecca, we have a skipjack race every year. Well, they've had it. Uh, we had it for years over Sandy Point, but they cut that out. And Deal Island down the bay, they have a skipjack race every year. Now, I bought the first boat I bought was named the Sigsby. It's in Baltimore, rebuilt, and it takes school kids out for the state for the city of Baltimore. I had that boat for twenty years. I sold that one and bought Rebecca because she sailed better. When I bought her in '84, I bought her in '84. I had the Sigsby from '64 until '84. She wouldn't sail good, but I made a living for 20 years. Then I upgraded when I bought Rebecca. She was in bad condition. I had to get her rebuilt. I took her to the shipyard in Virginia that does a lot of big boats. They estimated $20,000 to put a new bottom on the boat. It needed a new bottom. So... I took it down, $20,000 estimate, 1984. When they got done, it was 60000 I had to remortgage my home, took my life savings and everything to put in the boat. And then I started using her in 84. Now, this skipjack race started in 1960, and they've had a race every year since 1960. I didn't go to the race the first three, four years I had Rebecca. I went to the race the first time in 1988, first time she ever went to the race. 
Now, it had been going on since 1960. So it was 70 and 80. It was 80. I guess it was 88. And I hadn't been there all those other years. We started, I think, I can't remember exactly, but Rebecca won nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. Amazing. Nobody has ever done that before. And then I quit going for a few years, and then I went back. And now they have, I still win now and then, but they have small, a couple small boats that they're oyster, they're skipjacks, but they don't work them. They 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 they'll, they'll put them on dry dock a couple mm. weeks before, and it's hard for me to beat. I have beat them if it's if it's windy. I have more chance if it's light air. They're small boats, but it's, it's fair. It's a fair race and all. Okay, changing topics a little. I'm gonna change the topic. Can you tell me? What is daily life like for an oyster man? Tell me about your work day. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, w- we were talking about skipjacks. Mm-hmm. So they went dredging, sail dredging. You had to you had to have a sailboat with no motor. The motor, you, you are not allowed to have a motor and a skipjack. If you want a motor, you got to have a push boat, which is, oh, you have to raise it out of the water Mm. when you dredge. So they would, 1900 on up until the 60s, they would go out. Many days I've been out from sunup until 2 or 3 o'clock with no wind. We're waiting for the wind to come. If the wind don't come, Two or three o'clock, we'd put the push boat down and go home. So, in the morning? In the afternoon? In the afternoon. Okay. Now, uh, many days I've laid and waited for the wind to come, and it never come, but other people too. So then the boat started dying off. At the turn of the century, there was supposed to be a 1,000 boats, dredge boats. When I started 1957, there was over 80 boats working. I seen 80 boats in the Chesapeake in the 1950s. Last year, we had 10 mm. in the Chesapeake. They went from a thousand to they went from a thousand to a hundred to now we had 10 working. Wow. We have a few more that are in museums or mm-hmm. whatever, but it was only 10 working skipjacks last year. Now, the boat started dying off real bad when the oysters, we had a disease, got in the beds, and they were over-harvested also, and they got so they couldn't hardly make a living. We had what you call real mild winters, We'd go out. We'd go out day after day. It was just no wind, mild, no wind. So they said we don't want we we don't want you all to die. We want to conserve some of the boats. 
So we're going to give you a break. We're going to let you use a motor two days a week. Mm. So that was a... To keep the business going. To keep the business going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they said Monday, Tuesday, we're going to let you use a yaw boat Monday, Tuesday. And what you do is when you go out Monday, say, I'm Captain Wade, uh, Rebecca Ruark. I'm working in the chop tank today. So they keep a record, see? And then Tuesday, we go under power. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we have to sail. We could use a motor to go out, but when we got to the oyster bed, it had to be pulled out of the water and strictly sail. Okay? So we started nineteen about 1965, two days a week. Some of the other dredgers, and it was only 30-some of them left, 30-some boats, some of the dredgers wanted to get three days a week power. Mm. Well, if you go back, what broke up, what what caught all the oysters in Delaware Bay, Long Island Sound, was power dredging. That's Mm. what caught all the oysters up. We knew that if we power drudge, we were going to catch all your oysters. We needed to catch some, so the two days with the power was a good idea. It was a good limit. You have two good days. Now, many Mondays and Tuesdays was bad weather. Mm. It might be too much wind to go, but if it was mild, if it was decent weather, we would work the two days. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we would sail if it was any wind. Well, then, in the 1980s, we had the disease get in the beds. And the orchards got so scarce that we could only see power judging is much more efficient than sail dredging. Mm. So, so we started just using the two days. We never sailed anymore. It, sailing was not efficient enough. That year, 1999, the November 1st was a Sunday, so we can't work on Sunday. First day of the season was Monday, the 2nd. I went out. Now, we had our boats laying up all summer. Our seasons from November to March. From March, from April on through the year, the boats lay up the dock. And the machinery gets sometimes bad repair. So the first day of oyster season, we... Don't go far from home to oyster because it might be, we might break down the engine. So if we don't go too far, you go right back in and get fixed up. Well, I went the first day of November, the second day of November, Monday. I caught 41 bushel close to Tillman, but the machinery worked okay. That's what we were worried about. So the second day, uh, a Tuesday, I left Tillman 5 a.m., and it takes two hours to get where I was going up the river. It was more oysters there. 
So I left. Now, the cruise we get right now, it's a lot of oysters in the bay for us. So we can get a pretty good crew now. Back when oysters were scarce, you couldn't get decent people. So I had four guys. You need at least four. You have a dredge on each side of the boat, and each side has two men. They have to dump the dredge, sort the oysters. So the first day, I had 41 bushel with my four men. Second day, I went up when I got to the boat. It was only three men there, three of my crew. And I said, where is Matt, was the other crew member. And then they just, he's got to go to court today. Yes, he has to go to court. And before long, one of you will have to go to court because you're always in trouble. I don't say this to them, but that we're dealing sometimes with them dopers. Not, not dependable. But these weren't that really bad, bad. But So I said, well, I got to go to work, even shorthanded. So I went up the river shorthanded. That day, it was nasty as I've ever seen. It was rain, rain. We started a sun up, 7 o'clock, and we dredged, and it was rain, rain, rain. Now, these three men were doing the work of four men, so it wasn't as operating as good. And it kept raining, raining. The wind wasn't too bad, about 15, 20 miles an hour, which you can live with. So I'm 10 miles up the river. About 2 o'clock, it was so nasty. The crew was complaining. It was cold. So I decided to quit. I had about 75 or 80 bushel, which was a decent day. Now, at that time, we were using a push boat, no sails. But when you come down the river from Cambridge, when you come down the river in a chop tank, it gets rough out in the middle. So the push boat is not very able. You have to pull the push boat up and you sail across the rough water. When you get across the rough water to come in the harbor, you put the push boat down, take the sails down. So before we left up there, the wind was picking up a little bit, 25, 20, 25. And so I said, we got a sail. Now, remember, it's a new year and the crew were not really into sailing. We pulled the push boat up we got the sails up and we started sailing to Tillman. And this is two o'clock to start with. And then three o'clock around, the wind started picking up. It went from 20 to 30. And we were still sailing fair wind like more or less. Then it went to 40 miles an hour. But we watermen live by the weather. We listen to the weather religiously. And at that time, Mount Holly, New Jersey, was the best weather forecast. And they had predicted storms on Tuesday, two days before that. But right before that, they said it ain't gonna happen. It's, it's not gonna happen. Well, that's what happened, the storm. Now we're sailing, 
the wind picked up to 50 miles an hour. I'm still sailing, doing okay. Next thing you know, it picked up some more and it busted my sails. Well, when it busted my sails, it was a big way, big sea on. It was a big sea. I was afraid she was going to upset with the way it was rough. So I said, I, I, I can't put the push boat down. The push boat would sink in a minute. You can't use the push boat in that big. So I said, got to get the anchor over. I got to anchor and call for somebody to come and help us. So we got the anchor over, and then she would put the anchor over the bow. They come around headwind, and she's hitting headwind, and then it goes up to 60 miles an hour. Later in the day, they clocked it 80 miles an hour. 80 miles an hour. Now, that was 1999, so I had been out there for 40 years. In 40 years, I'd never seen anything like this, not even half as bad. Unpredicted. So, the next thing you know, she started taking on water from the deck. If you were up standing by the mast, water would come on the deck up to your waist, and then it would run off the deck. Well, some of it was running in the deck, in the hole. The deck was leaking. She started leaking. I had two pumps running. Couldn't keep the water out. Two, two bilge pumps were running. She was still taking all water. At one point, I got down in the bottom of the boat, and I had a five-gallon bucket, and I bailed and bailed until I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Now, you see, I was close to 60 years old then, in 1999. The crew were so terrified with the weather, they would not help me. They couldn't get, I was in water up to my knees, bailing to try to get the water out. The pump wasn't doing it. So anyway, we have a, we have a VHF radio. I can talk to anybody in the world on that radio through a marine operator. Well, I got on the radio to call my wife, who was right here. I called on, well, I called for help on the radio. And I, I, the radio was nothing but static, static, static. You couldn't hear nothing. You couldn't get out. The only thing that saved us, my life, my crew, was November of 99 was the first day I ever had a cell phone I had the cell phone I called my wife here I told her I was in trouble I told her I was taking water on and I, I, I couldn't move I was anchored I said go next door and tell Captain Robbie I need help so she went and she got my neighbor he's got a big 50 foot work boat so she went and got told him I needed help he I, I told her I was I told her I was in the middle of the river I don't know where in the middle because you can't see nothing the rain was so hard during this wind 
you couldn't see anything. I said, I know I'm in about 40, 50 foot of water in the middle, but I don't know where. So she told him what I told him. So he got his boat and his sons got another boat. Those two guys left Tillman to come out. Now, thank the Lord they had radar. So he come in the general area where I told him and with the radar, he found my boat. Now, later he told me on the way out to find me, it was so rough. He said he'd never seen it that rough. And he's a big time waterman also. He's never seen it that rough. He busted the windows out of his cabin coming out to get me. He said, I've been in a lot of storms, but I've never been in nothing like this. I actually busted the front windshield. So when he got with the radar, he found me with the radar. And he uh, he said, okay, get the, cut the, you couldn't pull the anchor up. It was so much wind, we had to cut it loose. So we cut the anchor loose and he got a rope, got a line to us and he started towing us in to Tillman. At that point, we were about three miles out, I guess, about. Well, on the way in, she was still taking water on with, I couldn't get the water out, we were still, and before we got all the way in is when she went down, she went to the bottom. Well, we didn't have, the life jackets were in the cabin, we couldn't get in, the, we didn't have any, so, I got, the first thing I got when I went under was a life ring. And I had, one of the crew had a, had a hold of it, me and him. The other two boys were up on the bow. She was still out of the water on the bow. She went down stern first. And my neighbor, he was, he was trying to pick the two people up. He had, to, he had to wait for me and my other helper to get away from the boat. See, with the, with the mast and the lines, the sails, all these ropes, it was hundreds of ropes from the boat. If you got that in your propeller, he would be out of business. So he had to wait till we got off. And then he picked me up and the other helper. And the water hadn't gotten cold yet. Well, it was cold but um, not, not ice cold. I was in the water about 10 minutes and that was no problem. Um, you could probably live an hour in that water. The other two was on the bow. She was still out a little bit and they would back up and they would jockey around and get things right. They had to be awful careful because if they got rope on the wheels, they'd be out of business. Finally, they got to two people off the bow and then we come on home but if I hadn't had the telephone we would have been gone no doubt about it because we'd have sunk when I sunk I was a mile off of shore and it was only like 18 foot of water see the boat's 18 foot wide and she was on her side so little tiny bit was out of the water if she had sank out in 60 foot, she'd have went, we wouldn't have been able to hold on to nothing. And we might not have held on to nothing even inside. 
But without the phone, without the telephone, we would have been gone, guaranteed. So anyway, she's, she's on the bottom. My heart was broken. After we got in, we got the we got the ambulance crew to check the crew. They were fine. They wasn't hurt. I was okay. So I told the crew to come down. I would pay them for what we had caught. So I come home. I told my wife, I am going to pay them. We had the first day, we had 41 bushel. The second day, we had 70 or 80 bushel, but we lost them. So, but I'm going to pay them for the orchard we lost. It wasn't their fault. I've already, I'm thinking, I've already lost everything that I, my boat is gone. So another few hundred dollars is not going to hurt me. I'm going to, they have a family to feed, so I'm going to help them. So I counted the money up. 41 bushel and 70 some bushel and I paid them for the two days and then they they were they don't live here they live in the lower bay where they were from so of course I never seen them anymore so the boat's on the bottom that was that was Tuesday it's still blowing now when this storm was doing the wind was from the south and it was fair wind after the storm was over the cold front come through and the wind come northwest which put it, it had been head wind for us the boat's on the bottom so I'm sick I'm really upset I called two local well I called a local salvage company he had a crane, a, a crane on a barge, a 35-ton crane to pick the boat up. Then I called another company in Baltimore, Middle River, for divers and pumps to pump it out when we get it up. So they showed up. So the, after Tuesday it happened, Wednesday was too much wind. Thursday was too much wind. On Friday, it moderated. So I got, I got these two outfits. We went out. We got the boat up off the bottom, but we couldn't get it high enough to break the surface. We couldn't get it pumped out. We worked all day trying to get her high enough. The crane wasn't heavy enough to do it. And then finally, when it got late, sundown, we quit. We put her back down on the bottom. Well, then I knew I would never see my boat again. I come in, when I got in, the crane charged me $3,800 for trying. The divers, the pumps and divers charged me $3,200. I paid these guys $7,000 for trying. When I got in, 
we went to the restaurant and the friend of mine owned a restaurant. He said, what happened? And I told him exactly what I told you. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the governor. He knew the governor. He called the governor and he said so many words like, do you know Rebecca Ruark is sunk? And the governor knew the boat. He didn't know she was sunk, but he knew of the boat. And my friend said, she is sunk. And if we don't get it up soon, it's going to break up. And the governor said something like, what do you want me to do? And my friend said, we want you to bring a big crane from Baltimore. He said, okay, I'll do that. So that night, this is 8 o'clock at night, they sent a boat from Baltimore, a big boat. They sent it down. And the next morning, I went out when it got light. That boat, the big, what, the long side of my boat, I have never figured out how he knew where my boat was at, but that crane found, and then we started working on it, had divers went down and put slings under, started picking it up, and by mid-afternoon, we had the boat floating. So we got the boat up. Now, all this is in the newspaper. All this, I have clippings. I have pictures of this happening. And when I do a charter, I have six books about my family, about the boat, about the bay, and I show people they enjoy the history. Well, anyway, I said, um, I got I got The only thing wrong with the boat was the motors were wet. They had to be drained out of water and cleaned up to run. It would take a few days to do that. <clears throat> the boat sank because of waves were on the deck. It didn't leak from the bottom. It leaked from the top. We're not going to have that waves anymore. Thank you for telling that that whole story because that was amazing. That was that must have been very scary going down in the <laughs> in the ship. Can I ask you a few other questions? Yes. Are there on a sailboat? Are there things that are good luck and bad luck, like superstition? And and all boats, it's superstitions. Yeah. Okay. On any boat, you know we're a hatch cover. If a hatch cover is left upside down, it's bad luck. It means a boat could upset. It's it's, it's probably not going to happen. But these old timers, yeah, you cannot take chicken on a boat. Chicken is bad luck. Chicken is bad luck. You don't take chicken on the boat alive or even to no, eat. Eat to eat to eat. Wow, why? It's bad luck. I don't know. Okay, the cutter blew. They don't paint boats blue. I knew a guy on Tillman, so superstitious, his wife bought him a new motor for his boat, a brand new motor. And when it come, it was painted blue. 
And he said, I ain't put that in my boat. They had to take it and paint it red or some other color. He would not. So um, also, like, I've heard, like, bananas. Bananas are bad luck. Hmm. Black walnut. Black walnut is terrible. They said that's what coffins are built out of. And it's a <laughs> so it's black walnuts. Oh, coffins? That's what coffins are made out of? Coffins, yeah. A coffin. Well, you know, oh, some wow. fancy yes. coffins are made out of black walnut. So that thanks. You can't build a boat out of black walnut. Oh no. No, wow. And they can't they don't even have, they don't even want to have a black walnut on the boat to eat. Wow. <laughs> so that's about I guess it's more but I can't think right offhand. But anyway, to get back, I don't know how much of this is gonna be on the radio about my boat about the the about the inspection. Yeah. But I think we we covered it pretty well. But right now I can't take anybody I can take six people, I'm pretty sure. I ain't had her inspected this year. I don't know if I'm gonna get it inspected because about 15, 20 years ago, the Smithsonian Institute made a made Rebecca a National Historic Landmark. She is a National Historic Landmark. They don't want her to die. Mm -hmm. She is the oldest boat in the nation working, mm -hmm. and they don't want her to die. But I've lost my contacts from 20 years ago. I don't know the people. I'm thinking I might go to the Smithsonian and find the maritime people and explain to them what's happened. Mm -hmm. Some of them may understand. And then they could put a little pressure to treat me fair. Um, can I ask another question? Oh, I mean, if I had a lot of money, if I had a lot of money, I could get a lawyer and find, but I can't afford it. Mm. All right, ask your question. What's the strangest thing you've ever seen out on the bay? I would have to say the strangest thing I ever caught was shark's teeth. Oh, fossils? Yeah, fossilized. I've caught the backbone from sharks before. In the Chesapeake, we have several places that's deposits of shark stuff. Yeah, the fossils. Now, we, when we dredge, we dredge on the surface of the bottom, mm -hmm. the surface the clamors that clam, they go as much as 18 inches deep in the mm. bottom when they clam, and they are the ones that catch the artifacts. Mm. Every day I'll show you on Facebook some of the stuff. Some of these are thousands of shark's teeth or millions. They're megadon. Yeah, megalodon. They come down in the ice age. Wow. There was never a shark. There was never a megadon shark in the Chesapeake. The bones you're catching come down from the when the bay was made. What kind of artifacts? Well, they were teeth. The artifacts, like what are they finding? And the backbone. Uh, it was we call it the backbone, mm -hmm. the the vertebrae. Yes, but it's not really bone. It's um, it's 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 not bone. Do people find treasure and historical no. stuff? Do they find arrowheads and? No money, no treasure chest. Now I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of it. Now, but 
the day I sunk the boat was the worst day of my life on the bay. I believe it. And then I've seen oysters plentiful. One day I caught 354 bushel in three hour time. 354 bushel loaded a boat one day. Now, other times I've been 10 hours and catch 20 bushel. Mm. So I've seen the best mm. and the worst is still going to come. Um, you mentioned it in the beginning. Do you know a little bit more about the oyster wars? And could you talk about the oyster wars? <clears throat> were, pe- were watermen killing each other? Not only what you could read out of the, I don't know personally, except what I've read. And see, when they first started, and I, it'll probably be in the 18, I would imagine the 70s or the 80s. 1870? Yeah. Okay. I would imagine even up to 19, 19 maybe 1920, these guys. See, we have different places to work. We have an oyster bed for, they have a line drawn. The the hand tongers stay on one side, we get on the other side. Now, sometimes the hand tongers can legally work on our bottom. If the oysters are thick enough, we can't work on our bottom. Scuba divers have their own places. But... The, the dredgers, and at this time around 1900, the people, they said, the crews, they were bums. They were they would go to Baltimore to a shipping office, and they'd pay them a shipping office so much to get them a crew. Sometimes I've read a crew would wake up from being drunk. They would Shanghai them, and they might work. My dad started 1914. He said he always heard the same thing. You ever heard of getting paid off with the boom? No. Okay. Paid off with the what? The boom, the the main boom, the sail. The boom. The boom. Okay. He said he's heard it all his life. He never seen it, but he's heard that he would get these people, and they would they wouldn't have gloves to wear. They wouldn't have boots to wear, and. He said after they worked them and got a month or two, they would take, and the crew, the crew don't know about sailing. They said they would, for instance, clean the cabin off, <clears throat> scrub the cabin down. You don't know about sailing, so you don't know about jibing, do you? You don't know about jibing. No. That, when you're sailing fair wind and you turn the boom will, if you jibe, or that's what it's called. <clears throat> Normally, what we call what you go about, you you sail, you make your dip, you go about into the wind, and you, when you jibe, you go stern to the wind, and that boom will come crashing across and knock the people overboard. Okay. See, my dad said he's heard it, he's read it, but he's never seen it happen. Mm. And that was 1914 when he started. I've read it that it happens. He told me that he's heard after they work them and they get written, they would go maybe maybe close to shore and make them get over and they'd walk ashore and be done with them. And then what broke that up was a couple people got 
frostbitten, amputated hands or toes or whatever, and they they got ashore and they sued the captains. That was around 1900, and that's when they started welfare being better for the crews. So, but personally, um, other than shark's teeth and uh, found other stuff, but nothing. So the oyster wars, that was the oyster wars. That was um, people fighting for oysters and the Navy was trying to make sure they were following regulations. Right. But people were like killing each other on the water. They were shooting each other. Shooting each other. N- not in my time. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is in the 1800s. They definitely, <clears throat> the last person that I knew that I've heard of, the last person that got killed was, I think it was about, it was either in the late 50s or maybe 70. It might have been 1970s. It was between the 50s and the 70s down uh, Potomac River. Potomac River goes clean to Washington, D.C., and they they would go there. They would have a small dredge called a hand scrape. You you pull it by hand, but it was much more efficient than hand tonguing. And them guys, see, after the second, during the Second World War, a lot of watermen was in the arm in the service, and it wasn't a demand for oyster to start with. After the war was over, things opened up, the price of oysters went up, and it was more demand. This and it was a bunch of them. My dad included hand scraping here in the thirties and the forties, but down in Potomac they were really. And I've got in a book here this guy named Berkeley. Berkeley, M-U-S-E. Berkeley was out. He was wild. He was wild waterman. And he was out. The police started chasing him. Now, they had real fast boats, you know. They made, and the police was shooting at him. And it killed him, Berkeley, from, he was from St. Mary's County. And uh, he's the last one I've heard of. Mm. Are there any Waterman ghost stories? Not that I know of. <laughs> I always love ghost stories. So I like to ask. Well, I tell one myself. Yeah. Sometimes when I had a party, say over in Oxford, it's an hour and a half from here. And if I had an early morning party, I might go over and anchor and spend the night on the boat by myself. And I I would go over and anchor after sundown and go in the cabin and sleep till the next morning. And I, I was on there when I first got the boat. And I was sleeping, and I heard sound like somebody walking. Somebody, I'm out in the middle of the, and I hear something walking. And then I heard the wheel turn. I heard, it sounded like the wheel turn. I'm down in the cabins. I got up and looked. It was nobody there. 
They said that was the captain owned a boat for me 40 years. They said he was the one. His ghost was walking on the deck. I swear I heard it. <laughs> but I never, and they said this was a ghost, but I heard the wheel, the, the turn them. Wow. That is great. <laughs> the, ghost, probably, the ghost of the last captain of Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I really like that. Um, let's see. I love stories like that. Um, are you are you religious? Religious? Uh-huh. I am not a real strict holy roller, but I believe in the good Lord. I believe in praying. The only thing I don't like about religion is these hypocrites. Yes. I don't like the hypocrites. I don't go to church every Sunday, but I'm just as good as they are and better than some are. <laughs> They get drunk on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. They get saved. <laughs> uh, do you ever do you ever feel the Holy Lord out on the water? So what? Do you ever feel the Holy Lord out on the water? Not, I wouldn't say. Um, and I'll tell you what. The day I sunk, I didn't pray. It mm. was so much going on. I never thought. Mm. Now I didn't think I was going to get drowned for sure. If I had, I'd have probably asked for help, mm -hmm. but I do believe. I definitely believe. Wow. So. Um, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. Okay. Um, are there any last stories you might want to tell? I don't know. I've got so many. I don't think. Okay. I, I don't know. Uh, I just would hope that maybe, I don't know how much you're going to use. You use what you want of it. But I know some people are going to hear this mm -hmm. that are boat lovers mm -hmm. and history lovers mm -hmm. and anybody that is. Now, I've been told the Smithsonian could help me. They said that people that supposed to know, they said they will pay 300000 to put a key on a boat. They will pay this. But a stipulation is something happens to me, the boat goes to a museum. Mm. I don't want it to leave my family. Mm. But And it might not work like that, but that's what they said. Well, since you brought that up, since you brought up your family, are watermen disappearing are there new generations of watermen? Well, you take like my grandson, he'll be, uh, well, my great-grandfather, my father, myself, my daughter, and then him. So that would be five generations, I guess. Are there more young people starting? Yeah, it's still holding around, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's... uh. It, and um, it's getting a little better on the water. And we, this area, have been lucky. Like right now, crabs, they are scarce. They are scarce. But they're more scarcer in the upper bay mm. and the lower bay. Mm. We have more than anybody. And because they're scarcer, the price is up right now. The middle of July, the price ought to be $50, $60 a bushel normal. 
It's 150 right now. Mm. And the boys that want to work, not because he's my grandson, but he will be the last one in. The buyer tells you to be in by a certain time so they can get the crabs to the mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. And my grandson will be the last one every day. Mm. He's he's only 20 years old. He mm. don't need the money. Mm. He's got his own truck. He's got his own boat. He lives at, well, he lives at me in the summer. Mm. Okay. Uh, but it's, I would say, I would say it's as many young watermen now than it was when I started. Oh, okay. Do you eat oysters? Eat them, yeah, I love them. You love them. them? I was wondering, do you still love them after all these years? I love them. And I love tr- eating them fried, like the po' boy, the po' boy sandwich. So good. <laughs> now, right now, like Ocean City, two weeks ago, Ocean City, large crabs, big, mm-hmm. $120 a dozen. No. Father's Day weekend, Father's Day weekend, they were hundred and eighty-five dollars a bushel. It came, it came to fifteen dollars a piece for a crab. Unreal. Unreal. And people buy them. Howdy, how's it going? It's a lot we're of good. And this is my son. This yeah. is hello, son. This is uh, the third. Yes. And how was cra- how was crabs? Well, I grabbed my Sawyer. First haul, I had twelve. Second haul, I had six. I took my line up, went over to Cook's Point. First haul, I had 24, 23. And where he was at? Now, Derek was in the way. I got above Derek, above where we were. Who was there? Derek. Garrick. Derek Wilson. But where Sawyer was at, was he? Two little short lines. He doing all right, was he? He said he's been catching four or five all day. I caught two. The last haul, I had 25. The last haul, big, great big crabs. Was it by the outside where Sawyer used to be? No. It's been more crabs out there. Well, his outside end was like 23 feet. Oh, yeah, that's where I started 23 and went into like 12 when I got inside. I see. It was crabs on the whole line, though. It was crabs on the whole line. 